0: Hello everyone, this is Scott McNamara with What's New in Adaptive Physical Education. We have a super exciting episode ahead of us with some of the editors for all of the Adaptive Physical Activity-related academic journals. But prior to that, I was going to let Dr. Andrew Clumbo-Dugavito interrupt our podcast for a brief moment to talk about his new exciting podcast called disability movement etc i'll let him take it away
1: hey there i'm dr andrew colombo d'agavito but you can call me dr andy i'm an educator and scholar in the us and in my research i focus on exploring the social political and environmental barriers to physical activity that are experienced by disabled people across their lifespan but i'm not here to talk about me I'm here to talk about a project that I've been working on for the last year and am finally ready to reveal to the world. See a tenet of academia has always been a sharing of knowledge, and we academics have developed so many ways to do so. The problem is that that knowledge, though shared, is often only shared within academic circles, and it's not ultimately shared with those who stand to gain the most benefit. We rarely, if ever, include those same stakeholders in discussions about what is important or what they feel they really need. It leaves a lot of research that goes underutilized or findings that don't ultimately have the impact that we wish for the communities that we work with. And that's where disability movement, et cetera, comes in. For me, the silver lining of an ongoing pandemic is that people were finally able to start to recognize how we could leverage technology to maintain connection, even build communities or movements. We're finally able to make activities and community accessible for so many yet somehow we're slowly emerging into this odd new pandemic normal and those opportunities seem to be slipping away through this show i hope to continue to bring those same passionate people together in order to build a community about making a more just and accessible world to start these conversations i've invited four phenomenal guests to talk about their experiences with disability physical activity and really every other part of their life. Conversations are happening monthly on YouTube throughout the end of the year. I'll release each interview shortly after, and you can listen wherever you find your podcasts. Subscribe now so you don't miss a single episode.
0: Scott McNamara with What's New in Adapted Physical Education. I have some wonderful uh, scholars and editors of um, in the field of Adapted Physical Activity joining us today. So just real quickly, um, I'm gonna go through and uh, just introduce them really quickly. I have Dr. Jeffrey Martin from Wayne State University, my alum uh, from my undergrad and masters. I have uh, Polly Runetella from recently retired and Paulie, can you say your university? I'll I'll, I'll repeat it when I uh, re-record it. Right. It's
2: called the U- University of Uvascular.
0: All right. Thank you. And I have Dr. Martin Block from the University of Virginia. Um, and so each is an editor of an important journal in our uh, field. So we have Palestra is uh, represented by Dr. Block. Um, Paulie uh, represents uh, the the. European um, Journal of Adapted Physical Activity, and Jeff Martin uh, represents the Adapted Physical Activity Quarterly Journal. So I'm really, really happy to have us on here to talk a little bit about what these journals, what they mean, what they are, what like what is their role as an editor, and I'm very, very, uh, yeah, excited for this conversation. So with that, can each of you briefly provide a a quick summary of who you are and your background in adaptive physical activity, and maybe a little bit about um, the journal that you're the editor for.
3: Uh, I'll I'll start. Uh, This is Marty Block, I'm the editor of Palestra. Uh, I've been a professor at the University of Virginia since 1992. Um, My first article I published was in Palestra back in 1987. Uh, and at the time, David Beaver was the editor and he was kind of the editor and founder and uh, another historical person in our field, Julian Stein, encouraged me to write it. I, I got to know him a little bit. So that was my kind of background with Palestra and, and published several papers uh, since then and got to know David Beaver. And when he was going to retire about 11 years ago, he asked me if I would take over as uh, editor. And uh, so that's kind of a real brief, quick introduction to Palestra, but it's, a, it's more of an applied Practitioner-focused journal with applied research and a lot of articles about programs and things. So so it's a it's unique 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 niche in our field.
4: My name's Jeffrey Martin, and I'm at Wayne State University in Detroit, Michigan, and I'm the editor of APAC. And I started out in a a little bit of a non-traditional manner in that my um PhDs in sport and exercise psychology and not adapted physical activity and I had um, zero exposure to any of the literature on disability sport or adapted physical activity, but when I got to Wayne state. I met a woman by the name of Carol musha and she introduced me to the whole world of, of um, disability sport and adapted physical activity and she was good friends with Claudine and Cheryl. And through both of those supporting me and being mentors and through a lot of self-study, I, um, I just made the decision to focus my research in sport and exercise psychology um, within the world of adapted um, physical activity and disability sport. And that's where I've been doing most of my publishing over the last 30 years. And, and through Claudine, I had the opportunity to, to review um, articles in APAC. And then eventually I became an associate editor. And about five years ago, I was asked to be the editor and and uh, and I said yes, and I, I signed up for a second three year term. So this January I'll enter my sixth and last year of being the editor. And the journal itself is focused very much on, on producing original database research that sheds light on Um, why people participate in disability sport, how we can teach more effectively in adaptive physical education and um, and a whole host of different topics that have practical importance as well as um, more maybe basic um, pure science value as well.
0: I want to ask one question, a follow up on that Jeff. Um, So you said that your your background really wasn't an adaptive physical activity, rather kind of got pushed into that. I just want to know, we'll we'll go into this a little bit more uh, with everyone, but do you think that um, puts you in any type of unique situation or uh, ability maybe uh, to be an editor in our area? Does it allow you to see things differently or anything like that, any type of benefits that you would see?
4: Well, I, I don't know if it was, if the value was specifically um, because I studied sport and exercise psychology, although that that's that's my whole approach. I do all my research in that area as opposed to biomechanics or exercise physiology. but I was in a program where um, my advisor and my committee members were really good scientists and so i got I think I got really good training on how to do research and conduct science. so I think that that really helped me when I then decided to to do research in this area and and then maybe the second thing um the adapted world and um is very small and well and so is exercise and sports psychology but it it, exercise and sports psychology is a a much sort of bigger field with more researchers and i in retrospect i wouldn't have said this a few years ago but i think all my connections in the world of exercise and sports have helped in that it's maybe attracted um, a few more authors than we normally would have had toward to APAC to submit. And it's, and it's, it's been a huge pool of reviewers for the journal. Um, and because I think, you know, many of them I've developed friendships and relationship, relationships with over 30 years. So if I don't push them too hard, I think they're reluctant to tell me no when I ask them to review an article. Um, and another interesting thing is I do have some people that will tell me, well, I don't know anything about adapted physical activity or disability sport, so I can't review this article. And I will often tell them, well, I want you for your, your expertise on things like statistics and research methods and, and the logic behind whether they wrote a good introduction and things like that.
2: My name is Pauli Rintala. And as mentioned, I just retired a month ago. And I've, I've been as a professor of adaptive physical activity in the University of Uvascular for last 25 years or so. And as a as the editor, I guess my my background is in exercise physiology to do my PhD first. At, in fact, in in Oregon State University, and and that's the beginning of my research career, but I've been in in Finland since, since that, and I've been in various fields or disciplines or different research projects, so I feel like I've gotten a good amount of experience on some other fields as well, and I was asked to to be the editor of European Journal of Adapted Physical Activity. Again, I think five years ago, this is my fourth fourth year now. And and this journal is the official journal of of the European Federation of Adapted Physical Activity. And now we are on the 14th uh, volume and we are publishing two, two issues per year at the moment. And as Jeffrey said, we are pretty much similar in the sense as APAC that we we are based on on data-based research, original research, and and it's a whole host of topics from physical education to sport, recreation and Paralympic type of, of research. So anything, Pretty much, which is under the umbrella of adaptive physical activity. Shortly, like that.
0: Oh, I want to ask. Um, you know, a lot. I have a big range of listeners to this to this uh, podcast. I have you know practitioners. I have college students. I have other professors, or maybe even people from outside our field. Um, and you know, I think these journals, these academic journals, are are. You know, they're they're very. There, there's a tier system or something. There, you know, Not everyone has access to them or knows about them or reads them. Um, but I want to know, you know broadly, why are these journals important to the field of adaptive physical activity? And how do they influence the field, the research we do in, in practitioners' day-to-day lives?
3: So I'll start again. Uh, this is Marty Block with Palestra. So Palestra fills a unique niche our focus is sport recreation and physical education but with a very applied piece to it so um, pilot studies that wouldn't be appropriate for the european journal or or apac we find we think they're a good home for us you know uh, just a handful of participants um, non-experimental non-control group type studies we think that's a good home for just you know exploratory types research i think those are places a good home for palestra and the other uh, kind of unique thing with us is that we provide a form for people who have created something unique to share that with a large audience. So just for example, um, I never knew about this program called uh, Rock Steady Boxing. It's a program for people with Parkinson's disease. And I, I saw an article about this in a journal on Parkinson's, and I contacted the editor and asked, can I reprint this in Palestra? I think our audience would really enjoy learning about Physical activity for people with Parkinson. So it, it was no research at all. It's just saying, hey, here's a really cool program. It focuses on physical activity with a population of people with disabilities, and we just want to kind of share it with you, so you can share it with your colleagues or learn about it or share it or things like that. So, so that's kind of our our unique niche. I don't know if there's another journal. Uh, you know, Jopard, uh, the Journal of Physical Education and Teaching Physical Education, cover more physical education things, but. I think we provide that unique form that's specific to adapted physical education, uh, recreation, and and adapted sport. So, yeah.
4: Um, In in terms of of APAC, uh, I I think the way the way I I sort of view um, view the value of it is is we're building the knowledge base. And so any any profession, which is really the people out in the trenches, the teachers, the coaches, the personal trainers um, that that profession and those professionals are going to be most effective if they're able to rely on a knowledge base that that helps them understand how to be effective teachers, how to help motivate individuals, how to help coach and teach individuals and they get that knowledge base. From the research that's published in APAC, but they don't get it. They probably don't, in many cases, get it directly by reading APAC because it is really geared towards the um, higher education and the academic world. So I would hope that they get all that knowledge kind of indirectly through um, through their teachers um, in university when they're studying adapted physical activity. And so it's kind of a filtering down process and um, where professors do research, professors read the journal, they they learn things and then they incorporate that into their teaching. That that's the ideal scenario.
2: As far as European journal goes, I, I think we also or or trying to build on the knowledge base of adaptive physical activity as as APAC, although I think the threshold to publish in, in Eujaba, as we call it, is, is lower. So I think we, we, and I hope we are attracting also younger scholars like PhD students, master students with their, with their thesis to make those publishable and, the, and allow those who are at the beginning of their research career, to be able to publish something in in our field and and secondly i i think we we don't have enough venues for people in this field to publish as you noticed we have these three journals and there are not very many others in specifically geared to to apa where you could publish and i think in that sense we all have a room for for existence so to say. Oh
0: I I love all these thoughts. I'm going to follow up on a few um, things that I heard. Uh, the first one uh, you know and I think in a way you know palestra obviously is providing this kind of like straight practitioner friendly stuff and, and I Sometimes I have students that ask me questions, you know, how would you deal with this and that? And I, I really do, sometimes I think that we don't have enough of that practitioner friendly stuff either in our, I don't think we have enough of that either. And obviously we have a big knowledge gaps in our research and such. Um, I, I kind of just want your opinions and, you know, if just one of you wants to tackle this or multiple, you know, Jeff kind of described this top-down approach to how we use these journals. And, you know, and I think that is how, what they usually look like is the professors write them and we kind of talk amongst ourselves and review them ourselves. And then that gets down to the practitioners. And I guess just, you know, a broad kind of philosophical question is, is this ideal? Is that how we want the information to go? Is it something that we want to trickle down in that way? Or is it something that we want to be more, um, you know, open that someone with maybe less experience with reading and digesting um, these clinical and, and technical papers could, uh, could be able to use?
4: I'm not sure. You know, I think I'm cert- on a personal level, I'm certainly open to, to sort of other models, but I'm, I'm not entirely sure what those models would be. I, I, but but two, th- two thoughts do come to mind. I, I do notice that in some journals, even what we'd consider very academic journals um Are sometimes now requiring um, a small section where it 's kind of like translating what we learned in the journal article into more practical information that somebody could could really take away and and as a result of that information, do something differently in the classroom or on the sporting field and and i don 't think that 's a bad idea I think it's pretty good and and the second thing is and I think this is a um, sort of a philosophical maybe debate that, that I think goes on in higher education and that is to, to what degree are professors responsible for, for um, translating what might seem like really abstract theoretical knowledge into really practical hands-on useful knowledge and and I think there's probably it's not an either or. I think there's a balance where professors, I would think, do have sort of an obligation, especially if they're if they're teaching people who are going to go out in the field, an obligation to help them understand how does this knowledge about learning about this theory in a research article how does it what does it mean you'll do differently when you're in the field, and so that that sort of direct um, that. Direct translation, I think, is helpful, but it's almost a little bit like that. That um, what's the? There's a parable about you know, give a give a person a fish and they eat for a day, but you know, teach them how to fish and they can eat forever. So I think we need to teach students how to make their own translations, how to read articles critically, and how to figure out on their own how will this, how can I translate this into the field, and and do a better job. Um, so that they also have that skill that they're not always relying on, let's say, professors to help them make the link. So that, that's my spiel.
0: Anyone, does anyone else want to jump in on that?
3: Um, I'll, I'll jump in real quick. Uh, um, I'm not sure if there's another model. You know, I, 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 I think that uh, I agree with Jeff. It's kind of the professors, ideally, their job to, to identify some of this research and translate it for their students, um, I hope that the professors are not just relying on their textbook and they are looking into some of the research, you know, and and, and finding information. Now we do offer the other option of of the bottom up where a practitioner will do some research or have a cool program and then they submit something to our journal and we'll publish it. So that informs professors. So it's, you know, and other practitioners, but um, yeah, I think uh, I agree with Jeff. I think the the model of, professors, and of course, students as well, finding that information, and then um, learning about it from the journals. I think that's the model, yeah.
0: He, I, the one I have, I saw one, I think a few times is uh, Kathleen Armour, I believe in the UK. She wrote, um, I think she had this idea, I might be skewering this a little bit, but uh, where you write a research article and then you pair up with a practitioner to kind of write a page or so on on, what this would look like in the um, in, a, in a class context uh, kind of thing I really like that idea and I don't still though it's a great idea but I think to that point still like there's theory based things and all these things that there's not always that direct line to you know applying it and maybe there shouldn't be either so um, I, another question I want to follow up on is, is um, one that came up about barriers to publish uh, pulley said, that, you know, like wanting to get PhD students and all these people in um, to try to kind of make a more, you know, uh, bring in more voices into the research world. And I want to know specifically, and, and this might be really, really important to somewhere like UJAPA, where you're in Europe, but how do you, I, one other issue that's come up a lot in academia is language barriers. So predominantly all or most of the journals are written in English. And I wonder as editors, how are you kind of navigating trying to, because it's not always the quality of research at that point, it's the their proficiency in a language that's not always their native language. And I wonder how, how do you kind of navigate those issues?
3: Um, I'll, I'll start again. This is Marty from Palestra. You know, I, I really encourage colleagues from around the world to publish in our journal, and I have some good connections. And when they do submit something that the English is poor, my, my first thought is, I asked them to see if they can find an English editor in their country to, to help with that. Um, I, it, it, I'm just I'm not an English person, so it'd be a big burden on me. and our our publisher does some editing, you know, certainly light editing, but I really feel like it's it needs to come from you know the the home home country. But'm uh, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very impressed with the articles I get from other places. I just had a couple papers from Russia. And the woman was very articulate in her writing, and I'm, I'm hoping she got some help with it. But uh, I don't think it's as, as big of an issue as I think it used to be. I think the, the the writing is easier than speaking. I'm thinking in English, and people have access to you know grammar checks and and, and context, so it hasn't been a barrier for me. Let's just say that as as editor, Palestra.
4: Yeah, um, this is this is Jeff Martin. I agree with everything Marty said. Um, and I, I and I would emphasize that I think now there's um, with technology there's there's a, there's opportunities and there's resources for somebody to um, to get help with editing if English is not their first language. And um, and the other thing that I've I've tried to do and this isn't necessarily um, my motivation wasn't necessarily purely uh, based in language. But over the years, I've tried to sort of identify um, different younger professors in our field and and invite them to to do research and to write book chapters with me, and and it's kind of to help them um, with their careers and and because more and more young professors from different countries are now being required to. You know, to publish and to get grants and to do all that stuff. So, so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help them in that way, and and some of the indirect benefits are are if and many of them English is not their first language, and so I can be helpful in terms of editing. Uh, and then some of those, you know, I'm think I won't use any names or countries or universities, but some that I'm thinking about, um, and and this is maybe more of a problem than than the language I find is that and it, this is speculation on my, on my part, and it's not really meant to be a criticism, but I don't know that um, some of the researchers out there are getting really good training on on things like research methods and statistics. And so with APAC, even though the, the major function is to publish um, good research, I, I do tell our reviewers and our associate editors that, um, If they have the time in their reviews, try to employ educational elements so that you can help, you can help the authors learn Um, because my guess is in in a lot, in some of these countries, there's not a strong history of research. So their mentors may not have been great researchers and and didn't get good training. And so um, I do feel a little bit of an obligation to try to be helpful in that regard.
2: Jeff I like that What you said the last that you help as the editor for those who may not have that kind of a background and for me you know being a non-native English speaker and writer I I very much I would very much appreciate that kind of help from the editors but now since I'm the editor that, that is one of the challenges I have and I think I'm <laughs> I'm very privileged to have Dr Kwok Ngu as my assistant editor who who could be in this discussion as well but he's not at this point and and since he's a native speaker of of English that helps me to learn all the time but also helping to to polish some of the issues we have in as far as the writing goes but certainly I'm I'm very I'm trying to be very helpful for those who I know are not native speakers. And and no matter how much I like the idea that the Finnish would be the the language of science, it's not, it's it's English and I have to adapt adapt to that myself. And and there are very many, for example, Europeans who, who don't speak that often or write in English as as Americans, or especially the North Americans do, that that is the challenge. And in the early history of Eujapa, we, we did some translations, like the abstracts were translated into German and, and French. But now I think it's the matter of finding those good translators and, and the financial issues as well that we don't provide that that anymore. But but that is, that is a challenge, and we are getting more and more papers from, for example, from Brazil and, and Spanish, Portuguese-speaking countries and, and certainly some Asian countries, and there's a lot of help. in, And so we need to do several rounds of revising papers just because of the language, but, but that's how, how people learn and we learn at the same time.
4: Yeah, I'd like to just um, briefly add one more thing that because we're um, even though we're talking about language and and we're sort of link, at least in my mind, I'm kind of linking it to to countries where it's not their their first their first um, English is not their first language. I, I also think many of those countries I, I mentioned, they may not have the professors there, may not have great training, um, but it's also they don't have access to to all the resources we have. Because um, over the last few years I've if, if I get an interest in, in a in a topic that's I just become curious about, and Scott, you'd mentioned that paper about power and replication, and you know, I didn't know anything about that, but I could go to Google Scholar and I could download all kinds of papers from all kinds of different journals, and I had all those resources, and I could read them all. and um, a lot of universities um don't professors or don't have that same access to to materials um and so i just wanted to point that out too that it's i don't mean to suggest you know their their lack of of maybe training or ability to produce a good article is is all their fault or their mentor's fault um, Absolutely. um i want to
0: uh, you know well, I, let me ask this one question and then I want to kind of, I want to talk more about being the editor and such, but I, I mentioned this briefly, but I kind of, I think it's such an important question, uh, especially for my listeners. And I want to know what your perceptions as editors, e- each of your perceptions of why this research is important to practitioners and why practitioners um, should engage or maybe, you know, not engage or, or, or something like that with, with this information that's in your journals why is this important to the people that are conduct that are um, that are practicing what we're preaching and researching
3: Well, will continue to go in order again this is marty from palestra um i think um a, a lot of what you know there's there's kind of like we know this works or and anecdotally I've, I've made this work but we need some verification or this seems to work in my school, or this works, I have created this program, it seems to work, but there's no verification of it, you know, and so I think that's a big part of what the research does is kind of verifies, well, this seems like a great idea, Um, you know, in fact, one of my uh, doctoral students was telling me he's doing a kind of a review literature on using visual supports for children with autism, and, and we use visual supports, and I love using visual supports. It's hardly any research that says it works. You know, we know it works, but it'd be nice if we have that confirmation in a physical activity setting. So I think that's what this research helps us with, is, is taking things that, uh, you know, we, we, we kind of think works, or we're not sure if it works, or is this the most effective versus this, you know, type of thing. That's what the research can help do, and in and, and my case with Palestra, we, we publish a lot of kind of survey research just to find out people's opinions, physical education teachers, you know, what are some of the challenges you face when including kids or uh, local sports clubs, you know, how are you including children with disabilities in your local sports club? So just, you know, not, not the type of, of real rigorous research that would be required for APAC or, or UJAPA, but, you know, interesting things that I think help help guide, guide the, uh, the practitioner into understanding some of the challenges people face and some of the things they've done to overcome some of those challenges. So that, that's my take on it.
4: Yeah. And I would just, I guess my, I'll use an example to illustrate my, well, first of all, I'll make a statement. Um, it, it's important so that they can do their jobs better. And and if you do your jobs better, then you're going to be helping all the children that you're working with. If you're a teacher or you're a, a coach and an and in an adapted sports setting. And everybody should want to be able to, I would hope everybody should want to be effective and good at what they do. But um, in my area of psychology, um, there's a, a, a pretty popular theory now that, that's called self-determination theory. And, and, and there's actually like six sort of mini theories within it. But the one very sort of somewhat simple theory is that is that people all have needs um, they have a need for control, they have a need for competence or mastery, and they have a, have a need for um, what, what's referred to as relatedness or to, to have friends. And if you're aware as a teacher um, of that, then you can create a climate in your class that can help children meet those needs. And often kids with disabilities um, have fewer opportunities to meet those needs. Uh, um, Compared to kids with um, without disabilities, so simply knowing that and knowing that's important to them in terms of their motivation and their well-being means you can structure a lesson and you can provide feedback that's geared towards um, creating a, an atmosphere or a climate that's more likely to help the children meet their needs in that setting.
2: Well, what would I add? Um, I I think that in thinking of El Jaba and, and and uh, the review uh, the, the readers of, of, of our journal, I, I think it is mostly meant for, as we discussed earlier, for professors or teachers in the higher education and then and then, um, and then giving that information to their students. And I think in many many ways, APA is such a new, discipline in, in the research world that it's just the making that awareness that okay there are research done in this field for people with special needs either in the school setting or or in recreational or paralympic settings it, that's even something we, I want to be spreading out through these papers we are we are publishing but but certainly, I would hope that these, these articles would be serving those in the grassroots level, but but it may not go that far. They may stay at the academia and, and then it's up to the teachers, professors to disseminate that.
0: Hey, um, one thing on what um, uh, Marty said was, um, I think one thing that it does also provide is validation. And I've seen that practitioners often use even my podcast sometimes as an advocacy tool where they get information and they say, hey, what I'm doing matters, what I'm doing works. And they might share that with, um, you know, when they're advocating for more time or more resources and things like that. So a a lot of times research and data is things that they're looking for to kind of advocate for those things too. But awesome. Um, I want to talk about your roles as a journal editor. Uh, it's one I'm fascinated with. <laughs> so as a journal editor, what is your role in ensuring that the research and information that you're giving to your audience is of high quality and how do you navigate this role?
3: Well, I'll, I'll start again. Marty, Marty from Palestra. Um, so what uh, I think the, the the first thing is with the reviewers finding reviewers who are knowledgeable about the topic and and willing to review uh, I know this is a real challenge around the world now getting reviewers who are you know willing to review papers in a timely fashion I've had more than a handful of papers out there right now that are going six months you know without getting feedback which is very frustrating so my my, my first thing before we go back to quality is I, I have uh selected reviewers, a lot of them are former doctoral students or young professors who are you know, really eager to, to uh, do a review in a timely fashion. And, um, and I swear to I, mean, I rely on the reviewers to, to really give me feedback about the quality. Uh, and, and to be honest, our journal uh, is not as, as critical. Uh, and APAC and UJAPA need to be much more critical with their reviews. They're, they're publishing much higher level research you know ours uh, I don't think the quality it's as critical you know if, if we do a study where someone looked at 20 participants or you know interviewed five people um, that may not be worthy of, of uh, APAC or um, UJAPA. but for, for my journal you know I think we, we do want to get some pilot things out there so um, yeah you know I, it's interesting I, I I would say it might not be a good thing to say out loud but quality is less of a, of a factor for me as getting information out, making sure that it's, you know, it, it's good, good things, but it's, it's not at the level of, of a, of a higher level research journal, if that, if that makes sense. So.
4: Yeah. So this is um, Jeff Martin, similar, similar to, to Marty. We have um, we rely on reviewers and we, and, and at APAC we have what are called associate editors and we have five of them. I'm hesitating because I'm wondering, maybe we have six, but at any rate. So they all have different areas of expertise. Some are geared more towards maybe um, sport, others towards physical education, some qualitative, some quantitative. And so when a paper comes in, you know, I'll try to do a good job of. of of selecting an associate editor um, because he or she, their expertise matches up with the paper that's submitted. And then of course, I rely on them to select um, good reviewers. And, and then ultimately, um, between the four of us, we hope we can make a fair and sound and good decision on the value of a submission and the quality of it. Um, And and, you know, for the most part, I, I I think we do a really good job at at least of only I haven't heard too many complaints from authors that feel um, that it was that the process was not fair, for example. In fact, I don't think I've heard any complaints yet. Um, and and the other thing that, that I would also add is that um, sometimes we get good submissions, but we have to reject them. Because they're simply not deemed sort of as good as other other submissions, and we can only publish so many articles in each journal. And so, so in an ideal world, I'd like to have articles just judged just judged on their merits. Um, but unfortunately, because APAC is so competitive, articles also get judged on are they competitive relative to other submissions. And so, um, so sometimes a paper might get rejected um that doesn't have a maybe a great or doesn't have a real fatal flaw but it's simply not deemed as valuable as as other
2: papers so yes and and addition to that i i agree that we have to rely on the good reviewers and and i i do have four what we call section editors who who do have different expertise and and i'm trying to you know provide them the right submissions so that they can they can choose the reviewers but it's always the, the balancing of of that quality of of the reviewers it, it is a hard and challenging task to find reviewers you get many who who don't who don't want to do that you you ask several several uh, experts and then it takes a while to get get a good review and sometimes it, it takes as Marty said that it may take several weeks or months to find the review and that's frustrating for the authors and as well to the editors and i i'm thinking that what what jeff said that apac has to reject several papers and i i've been thinking that maybe we could do some cooperation in the sense that some of the good papers APAC is not able to publish, we, we, should, we should look at in, in El and, and give them another chance and that would be something would uh, you know increase the quality of El Jaba as well as, as the, give the people uh, possibility to publish their papers when, when they are well done and and reviewed and are certainly publishable and that's something we might might discuss in the future but yes this is a quality of the reviewers that's what we rely on and it is a challenge
0: well my final question for you all um is you know and and that was a good segue into the final question is how do you see your journal evolving in the next coming years i know some of you are going to be rolling off uh, and what are your hopes and such for the next editors and what would you like to see in your, your uh, journal and maybe in research in general in the next few years?
3: Um, I'll start again. Uh, Marty from Palestra. I, I would like to see more practitioners uh, publish in, in my journal. Um, you know, we, we get a handful and a lot of them are solicited by people in the field who I know, you know, professors who say, wow, this is a great program. You should learn about or talking to people or things I've read about, but uh, I, I would really love to get more practitioners to publish. I think they're really a little bit hesitant, you know, they're really good practitioners, but they're not uh, writers, at least in their mind. And uh, so that that would be my, my big thing. We get, we're getting a lot of good papers from professors, young professors in particular, which I think is a great sounding board for young professors, but uh, just to give you an example, I had a paper from, um, Uh, A adapted PE teacher and a physical therapist in Northern Virginia, and they created a fitness program with a specific idea of teaching their uh, uh, um, high school students with, with intellectual disabilities how to improve their fitness specific to working in a warehouse, how to lift boxes, how to move things, which I thought was a terrific, you know, combination of physical education as well as, you know, job training skills, and they wrote the paper, and the paper was just really kind of disjointed, and I sent back some reviews and said, I'd, I'd love for you to revise this. And I think I scared them away, you know, with my, with my comments and, and I never got a, a, a paper back from them. So that, that was, that was disappointing for me, but that's the type of paper. I'd love to get more of just, you know, what are some practitioners doing that they could share that are really unique and innovative. So that, that that's the thing I'd like to see in the future.
4: Um, I think from, from my perspective, I think there's a, a lot of what I might call sort of maybe more mainstream research issues that and in addition research methods and statistics that probably a lot of people who publish in apac aren't familiar with so i think there's some distance between in general what apac researchers know and 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 what's kind of current and contemporary and I hope that that distance can be closed and i'll, I'll just give a few, maybe a few examples. Um, one of them would be would be the paper that that you mentioned earlier Scott where it's very difficult to get adequate sample sizes. Um, for um, a lot of research that that people in adapted physical activity and disability would conduct but, but it is important, so that 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 your study is not what we call underpowered. And so that your findings um, would, that would what, what researchers call would replicate, would apply to the larger population. And, and then there's, there's a lot of talk now about um, what, what's referred to as researchers degrees of freedom. And, and it's all the little subtle things that researchers do to try to make sure they get significant results um, because they know that's what gets published. And so there's, there's and then there's what's called the file drawer problem, where if you don't find something significant, that paper gets rejected because editors are reluctant to publish it. So now there's a movement where they' they're talking about pre-registering studies where you would develop a research plan and you would submit it to a journal and the journal would approve it and that means essentially that they're agreeing to publish it and they'll publish it whether you find significant results or not and so i'm not necessarily saying we should sort of do all these things or agree with all these things but we should be aware of them so we can at least talk about them and think are are they good things um, that we should do as as a as a discipline and 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 should the journal do it and those are all I think major challenges that um if I'm honest, I'm kind of happy that that the next editor editor can deal with them <laughs> well,
2: I'm in a similar position as jeff is that i'm I'm planning to the next year probably is my last year of editorship, and for the future i would I would like this this progress to continue as we've had more and more submissions and Certainly, you can always hope for the better quality papers, and 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 that's, I guess, becoming better when, when you have more submissions, and we can screen from those good ones to be published. And one, I think at this point, we have two issues, but we might end up having a continuous issue so that we, we are not limited to those six papers per issue in the future, but that's that's in the Process and, and needs to be decided, and certainly since this is all volunteer work, as as for for all of us, I I assume, mainly we need good people who who are very motivated for the field and want to advance the field and and make this more more aware in the in the public eyes as well, and so we we need that type of that type of help and also a little bit of financing would, would improve the quality since we could use some of the proofreading services to make those, especially in our case when we have people who are, who are not native English speakers and still want to publish, so that would help. But yeah, I, I see the bright future for the next editor as well.
3: Scott, I, I just want to share something that, that Polly brought up a really good point. We, you know, we're all volunteers, our editors, our associate editors, all the reviewers. Um, and and so uh, I, I hope your readers un- understand that or your listeners understand that. It, and it's not that we're complaining. I, I think we all enjoy what we're doing and we find very big value in it. I know when I get a paper to review from APAC or another journal, it's like, oh, geez, I got to do this, but I got to do it. You know, I, it's it's not something I look forward to, but it's something I know it's a service I need to provide to our field and it's important. So um, hopefully your your listeners will, if they receive a paper to review, take that advantage to really help the field and help our journals move forward.
2: Good point. Well, mm-hmm. Thanks for bringing yeah. that up. I'll, it's one last
4: thing to follow up um, with, with my students, I try to get them to, even though um, it is volunteer work, I try to get them to sort of also kind of frame it as it's simply one of the thousands of professional responsibilities you have as a professor. And, and to kind of stick it in that category, like most professors think about teaching, service and research, and to kind of stick the reviewing in that service category. And it's service to your professions, just like serving on a university committee is service to the wider university um, um, that you're part of.
0: Absolutely. Yeah, I I think, um, yeah, I think, I think that all the stuff that we're doing is obviously it's what is, it's our knowledge bed, it's what we're supposed to be basing everything off of. And I think without that knowledge uh, base, we barely, I don't even know if we really have a field, right? So, uh, and it's all our part to kind of try to contribute in some way and and ensuring its quality, creating our own and, and sharing it and all those great things. Um, I want to say thank you uh, again for coming on a second time and redoing this. And I apologize again, as my listeners know, I do tell them uh, updates about my life. So I just had a baby and all that good stuff. So um, my life's a little hectic and I apologize for for missing the, the the mark on the last one with you guys. So thank you very much. I'm very proud of myself and you all for coming to getting a group of editors again together, <laughs> um, especially in all these different time zones and such. So thank you very much for being on the podcast.
2: Thanks, Scott. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Thanks, Scott. Yeah. All
0: right.